Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. C'est un rêve en moi Si vrai, si fort All the world is So, I would like to begin by welcoming yourself, Will. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Good. I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm getting by. To the Squid Robbie World Cup retrospective, uh, Robbie or Squid Robbie, whatever you call me. But I am. Look, today, the idea is we're going to try and talk about Italy v Portugal from 2007. That's the goal. How are you feeling? I'm feeling so excited for it because this is a historic day in Rugby World Cup history. It's the only time Italy have ever played against Portugal in the Rugby World Cup. And I am very delighted to be welcoming someone we've had on the list of potential guests for such a long time now, for a really long time. The one, the only, Martello Cosali Francis. I worry I just got the name completely <laughs> wrong after we just talked about pronunciation. I had a moment of second guessing myself. I'm really sorry about that. It happens all the time. I've been on radio commentary before when I spend about 15 minutes telling them exactly how to say my name and then it comes to it and they just produce something that's nowhere near close to, to what I've just said. So don't worry about it. It's not the first time and it won't be the last time. It's the sudden... so It's a pleasure to be on the pod. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank oh. you for coming. Thank you. Thank you for still being here after I butchered your name moments after you just, <laughs> just told me how to pronounce it. Thank you for not hanging up immediately. Well, you've no. got nowhere to be, actually, so if, if I had got to be, maybe I'd be able to make a quick exit now, but I've, uh, <laughs> I've, 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 com- I've committed now, so I'll stick it through. You're stuck here. You're stuck with us. So I think, obviously, you've been on our list for a very long time. I mean, kind of the first thing that stands out is just the first two notes, the first two characters in your Twitter bio, which is a Welsh flag and an Italian flag. And obviously, just the surname, Casali Francis, is so distinctive. and there's such a story clearly there. I think as an Italian fan who is Worcestershire-based, do you mind if I ask, how does it happen? How does it land? How do you end up where, where you are? Well, yeah, it all starts, the story all starts at Swansea University, actually, where my oh, mum wow. and dad met. My mum came from, mum had been living in England for a while and she she left Leeds University after a year, didn't like it, had just spent a year in she spent a year in Spain doing her degree and mm. she came to Swansea and that's where dad was also at university. And uh, oh, I'm going to kick myself now. I'm not kind of the name of the pub. <laughs> oh, the Woody, the Woody oh. in Swansea, I think it was called. I think it's called something like that. If I've got that wrong, then I do apologise. Is but it still there? Yes, uh, it is still there. Yeah, yeah, oh, it's wow. still there. It's right on the front. It's um, right on the front. Let's see. But yeah, it's uh, that's where it all started. Um, so that's where the, the, the Welsh and the Italian Italian mixes, and then uh, they moved to uh, moved to Worcestershire, moved to Malvern, and uh, that's where I came. So that's that's the shores of it. That's the background. So I've got yeah, I, I, it's a, it's an interesting mix, um, but I'm quite, I'm quite happy with it. To be honest, it's pretty <laughs> unique, isn't it? And I've always yeah, been yeah. one of those that likes to stand out and be a bit different. So I'm, I'm happy with that. 
Did, so, did you grow up, were you like raised as an Italy fan? Were you kind of like, as a child, like taught like Italy is the team we support by your family? Well, it's difficult, you see, because mum, mum before coming to Swansea had no clue about rugby. I mean, rugby was totally foreign, never heard of it, uh, didn't understand it whatsoever, didn't get it at all. And she'd obviously, you know, in the era that she grew up, it was very much football based. So mum mm. was kind of the Italian football scene. So I instantly became a big fan of Juve and Alessandro Del Piero was my favourite player nice. growing up. So that's where I, that connection from. And then I was brought up by my dad to be kind of a Welsh rugby fan. So I was, <laughs> the two sports, I was kind of brought up to be in that way with full and rugby. So I ended up, so my, my, my background rugby wise has always, always really started Wales, to be honest. Um, mm. And it was. It's only been in the sort of the last six, seven years, really, that I've kind of leaned in, leaned more and more. I, I don't really know what it is. I think, strangely and weirdly, I think losing so much just made me more and more passionate about the Italian rugby side. And I started, to, and then the Benetton started to do a little bit better, and I, I just started to really get behind them, just desperate to see them win. And that's just sort of grown and grown and grown. And now I'm just kind of and breathe it, and just seeing us beat of course it would be worse that we'd end that losing streak too <laughs> which which is, in this household the six nations is always a bit tricky but having said that mum since meeting dad and and kind of living love in Swansea kind of all of a sudden fell in love with rugby as well so it's all kind of worked as I as I've grown up so I've been brought up very much as an Italian and a Welshman really and they've just kind of ebbed and flowed between the two over the years so it's um and now Wales are good at football as well, so that's brilliant, yeah. isn't it? So I've now, got, I've now, I've, I've kind of now got two teams that kind of constantly go and head to head. It seems in the, the, the different shape ball games, but uh, yeah, I don't mind it. I'm, uh, uh, but yeah, the rugby side of me now is very much Italian, and I uh, just want us to see us win some games. Even though, having said that, watching us win a game against Portugal was not a brilliant or beautiful watch, was it? Let's be, let's be <laughs> honest. Before we get any deeper into it, it's. Uh, Oh, God, I'm not sure I want Italy and Portugal to ever play rugby again, to be honest. But, uh, <laughs> How was that day, that last year's win over Wales? Because I know, speaking as purely a Welsh fan who is also a rugby fan, I was secretly kind of delighted for Italy. Do you have kind of the opposite, where you're mostly delighted for Italy, but there's a little bit of you that is gutted, or does it play differently? And obviously the household and everything. How was that day? To add to the sort of the just taking away from it ever so slightly, I was actually mm. doing a radio commentary of oh. Worcester Warriors playing in the Premiership Rugby Cup at Exeter Chiefs in a group stage match. Which, oh, well. When you talk about, when you add all of those things into the same sentence, it just sounds. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, at the moment, to be honest, I'd, I'd love nothing more than to watch Worcester Warriors playing rugby in the Premiership Cup. I said that in hindsight, but at the time it was very much like, oh gosh, really? So I was, I was doing radio commentary while I was running the live blog for my my actual job, the Worcester News job, and then on the on the side I had my laptop up watching Italy Wales in the corner. Oh, so I wow. was, so when Italy, I think when Padovani scored, I was kind of silently punching the air, and at the time I think X had <laughs> just won a line out, so it all it all was kind of weird when <laughs> I was standing up and I was silently punching the air, but. To be honest, I always thought that if when we're Italy beating Wales would always be tinged with a bit of disappointment. But to be honest, at that point, having that losing run, I was just uh, and watching that team. I think the back end of that Six Nations campaign when we 
we played really quite well in the sort of the second half against Scotland and it looked like we were maybe turning a corner and I think that's when Cap Watson scored a couple of tries and it was almost like, oh, yeah, what a great player he was. And we just looked like we did play some really nice rugby in the final sort of 20 minutes or so. And we played so well and like these, it's a it's really young side and everyone was kind of like, oh, this is really quite exciting. And obviously Welsh, Welsh rugby was then and, and kind of still is, unfortunately, kind of deep in the mire. And it was just a case of I just, I just wanted us to win. And so when that moment happened it was just pure joy really I, I didn't really yeah. feel anything else it was it was just a very joyful try and a joyful moment it was uh and then Garbisi sort of slotting the conversion and rolling back onto his back it was, uh, yeah. it was a lovely moment it was a really lovely moment they can't want to be... line out extra talk yeah there can't yeah. be many times where you're watching four teams and cheering for three of them that I must know. be a really rare <laughs> occurrence in uh enjoying rugby it was something I did a lot actually because given my job uh, especially during Six Nations time, it was quite a lot of the time I was actually uh, uh, watching Warriors play whilst there were games on. Uh, it's happened mm. before. That was the kind of the, the bad because Six Nations rugby to me, so I've been brought up to me, that's kind of the best of the year mm. almost. It's like Christmas. It's just it's brilliant watching all of these derby matches. And then I'm watching it from an Italian perspective. It's not always been that fun, uh, mm. especially in the sort of last five, six years when we've not really come close to anyone. So, um it was it was just, it was a, it was a great moment, and I, I'll, I'll always fondly remember that 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 moment, even though I wasn't maybe in the scenario I wanted to be in. And I'm sure Dad, given his wife's Italian, and, and and that he's also kind of naturally he's become an Italian, and Mum's become a Welsh. They they've kind of both taken on that because oh. they they know how much it means to each other. For the so I think Dad probably Dad's passionate about it as well now, and I think at the time he was sort of like, well, yeah. it was a lovely moment, and I think he was secretly kind of deep down relatively happy that that Italy won even though it was uh, was against Wales but um yeah strange moment and it's often been a game that's been quite it's always been really difficult to watch but I I, I don't remember that game being anything other than just a, a really joyful moment hmm. brilliant brilliant you mentioned before that like you've been you've only kind of embraced being an Italian fan for you know a few years now so when it comes to something like watching back this game from 2007 do you feel any great sort of affection for the Italian players that are on there, given you won't have necessarily grown up with them being your players, but now obviously that is your team, you know? Yeah, and I, and I think for me, Italian rugby is sort of, I think that the, that specific moment for me that I kind of vividly remember the first sort of moment was watching Mirko Bergamasco kick the winning conversion, winning penalties mm. against France when we beat yes. France. Yes, yes. And for me, it's always been that Stadio Flaminio. I know it was small, but what a gorgeous, gorgeous oh. stadium. And it was tightly packed in. It was just so kind of romantic and Italian and it, it kind of air. really old-fashioned. It, it, oh, it was just so it's much so better good than the, and the noise yeah. to create. Oh, the, the Olympico is just so massive and fast. It's, it's impossible to create any sort of atmosphere. And you, you see it, we beat Australia in, in, in Florence mm. and it's like, can we just go back to Florence? Because we've beaten, mm. we've beaten South Africa and Australia there now. So maybe we should, I mean, I, ideally I'd love it for us to find an actual home. That's what yeah. I love. And I think we all really want is to have an actual home of Italian rugby, not kind of sharing it with a place that's used for Olympics and football. It, it, it just doesn't feel anywhere near the same. But that was a sort of moment thinking, watching this game back, seeing Al Bergamasco, the brother in them, you can't kind of seen Sergio Prisi when he still had hair. Yes. And, um, Paul Griffin and Paul Tronkon. I mean, these are guys I don't think I fully kind of appreciated at the time. And now looking back, it was like, oh, what 
what kind of legends. I mean, they, they not all of them were particularly brilliant at rugby, let's say, but they were just sort of leaders and kind of you know, real out and out, out and out Italian guys who were just so mm. passionate to wear the shirt. And yeah, there's something really quite nostalgic about that Italian side. It wasn't necessarily a team full of kind of stars or anything, but it's kind of like rugby fans look back and back kind of name about Paul Tronk, uh, Tronk on and Paul Griffin and. And, and his hairstyle and, <laughs> and the, the socks rolled down and the sort of bullishness of drunk on well it was it's kind of quite nice to see those guys but unfortunately that was about the only good part about watching that game back to oh, was it was it was a struggle it was a struggle 70 minutes it was painful wasn't it really but um <laughs> it was nice to Nice to roll back the years a little bit. It's the thing, though, that like having done the 87 World Cup by that standard, this was a luxury. <laughs> this was like yeah, a few players imagine. caught the ball in comparison. It's so much yeah. easier. Well, we didn't catch the ball all that much, to be honest. <laughs> got the majority of the time thrown on the deck. <laughs> uh. I mean, to look at that Italy team. So it's largely the same team that they've been putting out for the rest of the pool stage so far in this tournament as you say really rare moment of Sergio Parise playing six yeah which is the thing that jumped out to me on the team sheet the moment you glanced at it with Manoa Vosawai in at eight one of those one of those players that never quite clicked that always looked like he could be something and it never never quite worked for him Vosawai had that spell at yeah. Cardiff where he looked great again yeah. and mm. disappeared that's what I thought I mean he he just he couldn't catch a cold that day, could he? It's just everything hit the deck. And I think he didn't control the base of the scrum at all well. And it, it was to, I'm not sure. He, I think we'd actually made quite a few changes from that game against Romania. We'd put in a couple, and so I think the, the back line were a little bit different. And I think oh, we'd, moved right. Sorry, yeah. we, we'd moved Vossawai to eight, and we'd put Parise to six. If, and, I, and I think we'd probably saw this game as a chance to maybe use some of our squad players and maybe give mm. them a rest. Head of because obviously that massive game with Scotland after this, so obviously made some changes and tried to freshen things up a little bit. Didn't didn't really work in the end, did it really? Because I think at the time, us trying to mess around with it was probably a bad idea. Really, I mean, we just scraped Romania as it was with arguably our first team anyway. So it was swap swapping, swap, swapping some players over was never going to be a great idea. But it was had that feeling, didn't it? Really, that we'd made a couple of changes. Mm-hmm. And, Maybe a little bit of consistency. That's certainly what it looked like. I suppose that's it. Is you naturally start looking at the star players who normally get rested for a game like this, but they keep Castro in, they keep Parise in. Gerardini Only one of Damascos is there, yeah. But as you say, but then there are a lot of shifts. So they've got a third ten in three games starting. Andrea Marzi is playing a third position in three stars, <laughs> wearing a third different shirt. He plays 13 in one game, winging another, and plays 12 today. They've got, got yeah, Roland Pablo Cannavozio. Maringi comes oh, in yeah, at 10, yeah. who is a player I was not familiar with no, when I saw neither. his name on the team sheet and did a little bit of research. Turns out he's a South African of Italian parentage who basically, after a while, when I'm not making it in the Super 12, I'm going to move to Clonetli. And so ends up what? as a weird, like, the next closest thing to yourself, March, like the next closest, <laughs> like a South African Italian who ends up living in Wales for a few years, <laughs> which is a very rare combination. And eventually ended up playing for Italy in 2004 and played a handful of times in the lead up to there. Then this kind of woke up almost becomes his last hurrah. Yeah, I mean, I think the 10 up until maybe 
the last god bc really i mean the amount of fly mm. arse we've been through in the, the previous 10 years before i mean we've had some absolute stinkers if we're being totally honest but to this position really struggled to find anyone and i think we've we tried to last to anyone in we could possibly think of that might ever do a job regardless of, of how in they are kind of anyone just bring in anyone to try and to try and play in that and um he was certainly one of them it was um i didn't didn't think it was too poor on the day no. really I, I no he was, he was right. kind of he didn't, he didn't really have a lot he didn't really impact the game particularly much we didn't necessarily do anything wrong so it wasn't a case of having too too bad a game yeah he was yeah. Uh, when I watched this game back, you know, a couple of players, I thought, well, I've actually never even heard of these boys before. I've never heard of them. And I was kind of all scrapping around being like, oh, who the hell is this? And I did that really with, with David Orton Lucy. To be honest, I didn't even, I, mean, I saw the name off, thought I recognise it, but I don't know a lot about him. So, yeah, there's quite a few players in there that flashing the pants still, so to speak. Yeah, I wasn't familiar with Borto Lucy before we started this, but I, I'm growing to like him, I think, over the course of this. I think he's he's actually pretty decent and he kicks the goals and stuff and he seems pretty solid at the back, which is kind of needed g- given the players that have been picking on the wing he Italy. plays like a really experienced veteran who's now dipping in form past his best. Yes! Except he'd made his debut a year before this. Really? Yeah. Wow. He's just got this very specific energy of like, oh, they keep picking because he's their only fullback uh, and he's past his best, but like they can still rely on him from time to time. <laughs> but he doesn't have that at all. He's Italy career, 16 caps from 2006 to 2008. Wow. Really brief kind of, you know, last game was in lost to England in the following Six Nations. 1923, that game though. So it was a, wow, close. One of those, yeah, years where they really pushed it. But yeah, one of the players. He, he was a French. He was a French-born, and he played. Oh. He, he played for, and he actually scored over 500 points for Montpellier. Um, oh wow! Wow. Back in between 2003 and 2008, I've seen, and he I think he must have played a bit of D2 as well. Well, the then version of D2. Mm. But yeah, he's got over. Got it over five hundred points for Montpellier in, in just sixty-eight caps. That's that's not bad. Foreshadowing Andrew Capuzzo there playing in the yeah. Pro de then the top fourteen, French-born. You know, absolutely. Yeah, and I think I was I was actually really impressed with him in this game. I think not not just mm. his goal kicking, but his, his really good. And the nice thing I thought about this game generally was all the kicks were particularly great but Borto Lucy's boot was massive and yeah he always had yeah. the spiral kick and like watching the spiral kick is just something that's just still such a so satisfying to watch and I just everyone was doing it back then weren't they because Dan Carter kind of was the guy that, that kind of finessed that and it was kind of that era wasn't it but yeah yeah the massive yeah. boot Borto Lucy and um kicked his goals really nicely and I thought his, his yeah. kicking man was really good and he put Italy in some really good really good positions I thought throughout the game and he was actually on my list of one of the sort of the standouts really in the game where it would be brutal if there weren't a lot of standout individual performances. So he, he was definitely up there for me. I thought he was sure. quite good, but but kind of a kind of an interesting one with you know five years, sixty eight games, over five hundred points from Montpellier. I'm not sure if that was also in were Montpellier acting in the top division at that point. They might have been so that might have been it's mm, probably when they were down, been, wasn't it? That might have been a D thirteen as well. But, um, pretty good stats. You mentioned that, you know, he was like solid under the high ball and so on. And like, he had to be, you know, and we'll get into obviously the game in a little bit. But like, to briefly flip onto the Portugal side, like them having Jose Pinto and Duarte Pinto in the halfbacks who both kicked the absolute leather off the ball, were both fantastic Un- and we'll, we'll come into exactly Unrelated, why. yet same surname, play halfbacks together That's and mad. play in the exact same style of play. 
look similar. Yeah. I can't believe there's not like a, a stray father somewhere. <laughs> the know. thing is, you mentioned on the podcast before that they aren't related. And yet when you said that, I was like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> the bit, you automatically go, oh, the Pinto brothers at nine and ten. Yeah. No, completely unrelated. They just are brothers. There is so many shared names in it's this. It's like a, we're not done this before. Yeah, 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 we actually met we, on a yeah. on this podcast at one point. <laughs> what is the that Portugal team? They largely go back to the team that played Scotland after putting out much changed team against the All Blacks, you know, because it was an easy game for them. <laughs> but they do bring in at fullback for his first game in this World Cup, Pedro Cabal, sticking on the fullback theme, who I was instantly a big fan of. <laughs> Who was they dropped Pedro Leal. Yeah. How dare they? So they dropped probably their biggest name player, you know, big sevens player, Pedro Leal. He's back bring anyway, in, yeah. Yeah. Bring in this uni student at fullback who has a blinder. <laughs> it was great. And yeah. That's the kind of thing that, you know, this podcast is fundamentally stupid. And I'm sorry <laughs> I didn't say this before we invited you. Uh, <laughs> but... I was well aware, don't worry, I, I've watched enough of them to know that this, that was the sort of theme behind it. It, was, it, was a totally, it wasn't a totally serious look at rugby, so that's, I've, I've prepared myself for that. <laughs> that's good, that's good. But part of the joy of this, I think, is seeing like a Portuguese uni student come in and have a blinder against a Six Nations country. Absolutely. Like those rare things that never seem to happen. And, and like seeing Alessandro Troncon dropping his kicks. It's yeah. like, imagine how that feels for Pedro Cabral, the uni student from Portugal. It's incredible. It's a legend has dropped the ball you sent at him. It was, it was it, like, like Portuguese players, like they actually, a lot of them looked as though they were sort of kind of guys that had just been roped in from, roped in from down the road, just until like stick a shirt and see what you can do. And a lot of them just kind of, those shirts are hanging off. And a lot of them just kind of said, well, let's just, just get stuck in, shall we? And that was, that's what I really took from that game was just a bunch of guys that were just like, oh, let's just muck in and then see what we can do. And they didn't do a, didn't do a bad job, did they, really? Yeah. Stopping the, kind of keeping a Six Nations side to not even score a bonus point. I mean, that's and only one try in 70 minutes. It's not it's not bad, you know. And ultimately, yeah. we scored we scored basically in the first minute and the couple in the last minute. So it's kind of for the majority. <laughs> Again, they did a great job of, spoiling everything for us that's kind yeah, of that's kind yeah. of what I, I imagine they were told to do just go there and just try and spoil as much ball as you can and they did did a so really good job of that the we mentioned before like portuguese qualifying on another episode but if they had to qualify for this world cup as well having not had automatic because they only had the uh quarterfinals qualify automatically so if they haven't finished third in the pool didn't qualify automatically world rugby put in place for qualifying for europe for this tournament a incredibly streamlined system for Italy and an incredibly lengthy system for literally everyone else. So Portugal played 17 games in qualifying in total, going through for both Europe spots and then for repechage in the end. Italy played two and qualifies. Wow. So Italy's two games in qualifying. They beat Russia 67-7 and then they beat Portugal 83-0. Oh, yeah, they brought up the 83-0. Yeah. Like, a lot of times, because Portugal kind of made them, you know, in that way of, like, you know, look how much they've shrunk the gap between these two. Now they're actually at the World Cup. The really funny thing is, right, so Mauro Bergamasco scored a try in that game as well, and Andrea Marzi scored two. Interesting. So the same try scores that happened in that game, just they managed to cut out 
the 11 other tries that Italy <laughs> oh. scored in that match. That's the difference, you know. That's an improvement, have, man. Yeah. They cut out the Bottle Army try, the Canavosio try. Rob, Kane Robertson got a hat trick. Wow. You know, all of those tries just didn't happen in by the time they get to a World Cup, which is a hell of a turnaround. As you say, like, <laughs> there's so much just spoiling the ball and just being... Mm gritty and doing the kind of really small ugly things and just making the game ugly in a way that I saw I appreciate even if you don't necessarily enjoy no I loved it I really enjoyed this Mm. game actually I think that I'm sorry March but I was celebrating Portugal all the way through this you know and just really enjoying the way they took it to Italy and like the the thing I found really fascinating and I suppose I I say we'll get into this when we look at the game properly but like the way that the Italian pack were clearly so much stronger, clearly the dominant pack, but gave absolutely no protection to Alessandro Troncon. And mm. Troncon is an absolute legend, right? He knocked the ball on like eight or nine times in this game just because he was given no protection at all by his pack. And just the Portuguese pack just targeted him all day long. And I was fascinated by that because they were in the set piece getting essentially battered, but really made up for it around the park. This interesting what they were. They were just like a team of, team of flankers, wasn't it, really? They just yeah. kind of yeah. like, let's just... It's for the ball because scrum was ridiculous at times. It just, it just looked. Yeah. It was like, you know, have you ever, assuming you guys played rugby away? You play yeah, rugby yeah, away, yeah, of course. Game. Like, and if you, if you really got it right, you just absolutely hammer the team and scrum <laughs> and you just roll it back. So, like, three seconds, it'd be like halfway down this type thing. And that's what it was at times. I mean, especially that, I think that Marcy trial was on the back of just a totally dominant scrum. But for all of that, we just never seem to, and that was, I think, with the, the bringing Vostawai in and moving Parise from eight, mm. and obviously Parise is so much more comfortable at that eight position. Of, and he's also he's also such a, t- I mean, his feet are so great, he's technically so brilliant. Yeah. Parise, and we missed that because Vostawai came in and he was like that kind of the, the scrum still being able to kind of lean fully back and then just smash your head straight in and kind of using that from the number eight, which kind of can't do anymore, but. He seemed to be like, I'm going to drive this ball and then just forget about the ball. <laughs> Power pass it and then, and then let Troncon sort of deal with it. And that's kind of what, what happened, really. I mean, for all that dominance, we really didn't, weren't able to capitalise on it at all. That was it. Like, they drove so far beyond the ball that they didn't realise it was it needed to still be in the scrum. <laughs> like, they dominated Portugal so hard and the ball just stayed exactly where it was. And then Troncon was like, oh, what? I've got to deal with this now. Like, <laughs> like, keep it in the scrum, lads. But not Yeah, and, and, at, and at one point, Paris say just gave up on one scrum. He just thought, oh, I'm going to leave the scrum. And just took, <laughs> totally took his bind off, just started walking off just because we didn't even need eight forwards to win the scrum. It was just... Uh, it's, it's strange, really, and we just not being able to capitalise on it. But I think that was all part of just we actually knew we had to win. hadn't beaten we hadn't beaten Romania with a bonus point five, and I think the case of we knew we had to win with a bonus point, and I think that kind of affected us a bit. And mm. a couple of changes we made didn't really helped. I think that was still at a time. When, I mean, we've never been. At a, I don't think we've ever ever been in a place. Maybe now, so maybe, but never been in a place where go into many games expecting to win and I think in the past we've gone into those sorts of games and really really quite struggled Mm. and whenever we did win it was sort of a little bit more of a a shock or a surprise and only recently Mm. has it become a point where in the last couple of World Cups maybe that we have these teams where we normally have in the group we have two games where we're expected to win and we never really look that good in those games we get the job done we do enough but We've never been a team that's enjoyed playing with that sort of expectation. And I think 
we probably had that against Wales this year, didn't we? Really, mm. and we did. We didn't. I think we struggled it then as well, I and that was kind of quite. It's something teams have to learn: is how to win games and how to hold on when you've got that pressure on you and that expectation. And I think yeah. it's the phase that you're in, which is kind of the most difficult one in becoming a proper competitive team, is you go from being a team that isn't expected to perform to one that is, to one that then has to actually win games and managing that expectation and just learning how to hold out and manage games is really difficult and it's far more difficult than scoring a few tries when you've got enough talented players and it's converting that talent into actually being good is the stage I think Italy are at at the minute. Yeah, yeah. And I think this Six Nations was probably crucial in them learning from that. At least I really hope it was because they got, there was enough the year beforehand both in the performances, but especially in those two wins over uh, Wales and Australia, where you went, oh, this team is turning a corner, you know? And it's just learning to do them consistently. And maybe you need to be set back a bit in order to keep going upwards. I tweeted something along those lines after that Scotland game. We were probably in a position to win three of those five games with mm. five minutes to go. And I don't think we've ever been in that, that position before. And yeah. You look at it on the face of it, you think, oh, we lost all five after Italy. But then you look at all of those games and there were only only England and Wales where we weren't ever really in the game. I think against England, we had a spell after half time and we looked better in the second half. But then other than that game, all of those other three games, we were in a position to win. Ireland had a few tries disallowed, but I think if you don't kick the bloody ball, if you don't kick the ball against Ireland when we've got kind of three on two uh, in the corner. I mm. think that was Brexit that kicked the ball and it's just like, if we'd oh, have yeah, yeah, yeah. we then had a scrum on the Scottish line, you know, phase ball on the line, some questionable referee decisions, let's be fair. But we were, <laughs> you know, with, with oh. that game, the scoreboard didn't reflect, but ultimately we should have probably got losing bonus points at least against Ireland and Scotland as well, if not winning both of those games. So, mm. It's, it's, it's a weird Six Nations, really, in the fact that it was probably potentially our most successful Six Nations ever yeah. in terms of performances and, and the way we come out of the games. But obviously, one point, it's not yeah. a great it's not a great representation of it, is it? So I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that we don't sort of press the, I'm not press the panic button, but I'm hopeful we don't, we're not too discouraged by that. Because I think on the, on the, when you reflect on it, it was a really encouraging one, if not ultimately incredibly frustrating at the same time because mm. it was kind of moments of madness, silly thing we were doing and that will only come with time. So I'm hoping that we can put something more together and, and, and somehow get out of a group with New Zealand and France. <laughs> I'm still trying to work out my head how we're going to do it. But, but I try to convince myself that maybe we'll do it. <laughs> it's, you yeah, need yeah, look, it's going to be a different again. one. Uruguay beat France. France beat the All Blacks. The All Blacks... Uh, draw with Namibia. <laughs> Everyone else implodes. Somehow it and builds you beat up. Them. There we yeah. go. Yeah. Italy draw with the All Blacks again yeah. after last time. The heroic nil nil yes. draw last time. Yeah, we've got a great, we've got a great record. We've got a great record against Susan in the World Cup. So nil <laughs> nil. Keeping a clean sheet against the All Blacks is a good. Is pretty good. Yeah. I don't think anyone's ever yeah, done. Not that. many teams that can say they've done that, can they? <laughs> <laughs> it's the first uh, pool game the All Blacks have ever not won as well in Rugby World Cup history. So it's, uh, it's quite the achievement. Yeah. No, I was watching the end of that Scotland game back in the office the other day and 
the fury I felt and had to pause Will doing whatever he was doing at the time to be like just unbelievable. The the enough times passed, you know, the refereeing decision at the end and the fact that Michele Lamara was fuming about yeah. yeah. And going back and watching and be like, no, he's completely right. He's well within his mm. rights. But I think there's another part in the Italy's journey is Lamoureux was so dead on in every interview and he gets his process and he gets where they are exactly. That that gives me a great deal of confidence that it's going to keep building from there. Because I think he comes out and says the right things every time. Yeah. And not just in a reflective way, in a this is what we need to do to build on it. Yeah, more so, lots more than I certainly got out of Sergio Parise in his mm. interviews, you know, and he'd always kind of say the same things of like, oh, we need to learn from this, we need to do blah, blah, blah. But ultimately, like, he, I don't feel like he problem solved nearly as much as Lamoureux does. But I think there are different kinds of captain. Massively. In that Parise, and Parise was brilliant to follow him. Yes. Whereas I think Lamoureux is kind of the first He wants to follow others. Calls, you know, yeah. He's, yeah, he wants to be like the leader amongst a group where he... Yeah. I think they're different kinds and they're both equally valid. Both brilliant. Styles. Both absolutely brilliant. I um, love Caruso. And seemingly more effective than Marco Bortolami's in this. Oh world. my God. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the amount of telling. Of telling it wasn't his best game. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, should we just quickly talk yeah. about the opening two minutes of this game? Because the, the one stuff... thing to note from the start of the game, Alexander yeah. Troncon's 100th cap. Oh, is it? Yeah. So that's why he leads the teams out. Confused me when he wasn't captain. If very hard to get my head around the fact that it wasn't Parise or Troncon as captain. Yeah. yeah. It was his 100th cap. First Italian to win 100 caps. So yeah, it was only the seventh player ever at the time. After Gregan, Larkham, Campesi, Leonard, Pelouse, Seller, and one game before Gareth Thomas. Gareth Thomas did it a few days later. Wow. That's brilliant. So, yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Kick off the first kickoff of the game happens, and Italy catch the ball, you know, they do a lifting pod to catch the ball from the kickoff, and then go, all right then, lads, let's take it to him. And yeah. they catch the ball on the 22 and they form a mall which just goes and goes and goes. <laughs> yes. And you just think, Jesus, what what are Portugal in for here? Portugal eventually collapse it on the halfway, at which point Troncon puts in a really good kick for Cabral, who just kind of slices it into touch and you go, oh, shit, they've got an opportunity for another line out, another mall here. And you just, there's yeah. such a sense of inevitability. Yeah, and it turned into absolutely nothing in the end, didn't it? But it was <laughs> yeah, because they went off the top. They didn't even haul it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we did that. We did that pretty much all consistent throughout the game. Really, instead of yeah using that driver, we just kept just trying to go off the top. We just kept going much easier at the time, and we just kept tapping it off the top of the line and, and going off the top. And the the theme for the game was then 
we'd get the ball off the top and Dingy would just sort of go sideways a little bit before putting it to his left. And then we just drifted sideways, sideways, sideways. And a lot of the time it was either Cannavossi or Fatichetti on the wing who we had no yard whatsoever. We just got it all the width and that was kind of it. We dropped it. That's kind of what happened. It was totally dominant start. I mean, that first more was just crazy. Mm. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like that. But yeah. um, And then it's, and yeah, then let's go off the top. We scored early on. Yeah, let's go off the top and bonk it on Troncon's head as hard as we possibly can. It's the fundamental yeah. difference between the two teams is Italy are a much, much better team than Portugal, right? Like them winning by 80 points the last time they played. Not a fluke. Yeah. But Portugal know exactly what their strengths and weaknesses are and play to them. Yeah. Whereas yeah. Italy, their strengths are very obvious. Like they're incredibly dominant at the set piece, like line out in particular, then scrum, all but maybe two scrums, they're completely on top. And yet they don't use any of it. They're, they're all talent and no structure. Like, yeah. there is no structure to the way they play. Their backline is the flattest backline I've ever seen. And it's literally, if everyone had two or three more paces on the ball, they would have absolutely cleaned up here and scored loads and loads of tries. Yeah. And that's what, yeah. when they have that first one that first lineup where they actually do go for a mall on the five meter line and it's great because it's quite a dominant mall and you think they're going to score from this at which point Rui Cordero goes you know what I know where this is going I'm just going to get myself sent to the sim bin and we'll just have this penalty try I, I just I'll just get this over with and just runs like straight into the middle of the mall to just try and fuck shit up and is obviously massive and like I'm not sure exactly what the ruling is. I just know that that's not allowed. At which point, Troncon just kind of goes, oh, okay, we'll just get the ball out to the backs then. Don't worry about it. We'll just leave him to it. No, um, and I think, I think we just we just, we just just kept doing that, didn't we? And it was... You, you look at that, you look at the pack as well, and obviously we're talking kind of a long time ago now, but mm. it's kind of packed full of experienced blokes who... Mm. That, that Italian pack has got some you know, serious names in it, and none of them were young, not particularly young at the time, so it's strange that I always think that forwards absolutely love it when they've obviously got a massive advantage they just say right we're going to everything we do we're just going to kick the corner we're going to driving more we're going to scrum and we're going to work we just play an eight-man game and just score six tries each which could have happened but instead it was like let's just do everything to not do that and I think whenever (laughs) we got the ball out we were running, we were never making yards. We were always just kind of doing everything 20 metres behind the game line a lot of the time because Troncon's pass on the one stop was just brilliant. And it was like every time he could pass it 20 metres back. And that's when we started and we started playing so far behind the game line. But then whenever the centres got it and Marzi and Canale, they looked really good and they were running direct lines. And then, mm. but the problem was, is they'd made really good yards, but they were the ones that they'd just lost through the fact that we were playing 20 metres yeah. behind the game line. So we were making loads of yards, but it was actually not converting to anything because it was all behind the game line anyway. So you're right. I think if Meringi had taken a few steps before his pass, yeah. you could just see that we we had the, we had the running lines. We had the pace. We just, yeah. like you said, we could have cleaned up, but we just... I also Go think there's a really key turning point in that first 10 minutes where, so Marcy scores on basically their first attack. Yeah. Uh, you have... Yeah, Dimarindi has a lovely touch to put him over after a really strong maul. Marcy just hits his line perfectly, you know, enough eyes on 10 that he can pit his line. At which point do you think this is going to be 70 points? Yeah. That's like two minutes in, if that. Lovely line, gloriously picked. He runs, takes it in under the post, dots it down. Four minutes in, they're already ahead. 
they get down instantly back into the 22 and they have a really good chance. And, you know, they're, they're on the marks. In fact, the Moors gone forward. They're within 10 metres of the line, at which point the referee blows an inexplicable penalty to Portugal. No one's got any idea what it's for. And he says, oh, the touch has just told me it's a penalty to Portugal. And he walks over and <laughs> walks over to the touch judge. He just goes, just, just bin their captain for you, will you? <laughs> just, can you just, can you just yeah. bin the Italian captain? For and a punch. Like, yeah. And uh, I, I, I was thinking, I remember I was quite, when I watched it, I was like, oh my God, he's punched him. I was like, nowadays, if there's a punch, it's kind of a straight red and probably like a yeah. 58 game ban or something. And I was like, <laughs> so oh, he's punched him, put him to the bin. And they got the referee just turns and goes, Marco uh, punched him, gave him a card. And just like, ah, a yellow <laughs> card for a punch. And then everyone's desperately scrabbling around to try and find this punch and no one can see where it's happened. Got no idea how the, the touch judge has seen anything on that on the <laughs> no. floor. Did you say at half time they find an angle that finally shows it? Yes. And yes. He like, shrugs, he like shrugs him off. Yeah. The pundits just rip into that touch slightly. judge. Yeah. Oh, the, the, the halftime coverage is hilarious because it's four identical men. Just <laughs> it's the same. It's like <laughs> when a video game accidentally renders the same NPC four times next to each other. Because it's four men who all look the same, with the same haircut, wearing the same suit. With the same accent. Yeah, same accent. All sound the same, the exact same. All of them have the same same. opinions on everything as well. (laughs) (laughs) So they'll be like, oh, the touch judge is a joke. And they're like, yeah, it's just attention-seeking. Yeah, it's a terrible decision by the touch judge. Yeah, Yeah. it shouldn't have been a yellow card. I also like... Next instrument, next incident. And all of them will say the same thing about the same thing over I and over again. I like the take that Andrea Marti did Italy no favours by scoring that try. Yeah. Life, which was so far Italy's <laughs> only try in the game at half time. No, he shouldn't have scored that. He should have drop kicked it instead. Yeah. We should have been behind. We should have been behind. Being behind at half time would have been a better thing to do <laughs> than scoring. Like someone that says, oh, they scored too early in football. It's like, oh, that's... We hit it too well. He hit the he, he hit that strike too well, and it's just such lazy crap. Just this thing's about and just thinking, oh my god, what is this guy? It doesn't mean anything as well. There's no, no world in which that makes any sense whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> but what I really like is Marco Bottolami's response to that because when he's told, "Oh, you punch a guy on the ground, it's going to be a yellow card," he goes, "What?" Like that, and literally sticks his hands in the air, like next to his head, like fully shrugs with his whole body. Sitcom shrug. Yeah. Immediately, I was like, "Oh, he's not punched somebody," because that's a genuine reaction. I've never seen one of those before. (laughs) Usually, it's like we had it with Shonet Harris last week in the Wales game, where it was like, "Oh yeah, you punched somebody," and she goes, "No, no, no, I've not punched someone. No, 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 I did this. I grabbed them, and then I threw them to the floor, and then my arm just fucked about, and I got them by accident, and they've got a backup story planned." Whereas Marco Bordalami is genuinely shocked to find out he's punched somebody there. And I was like, okay, this is suspicious. And because it is, he just moves his arm somewhere near his face. He doesn't connect. He doesn't really go for it. I don't think his fist is drawn or anything. But I think it's a huge momentum swing. Yeah. Because Portugal survive an attack when they didn't look like they were going to. That looked like Italy were just, you know, Mm. moments away from finishing that off. Vasco Uva gets a jackal turnover as well. Yeah. And so slowly, Portugal wait a couple of moments, and I think they start to believe yeah, because all they do is they they put in a lot of effort. There's no real like finesse to yes. anything they they approach, but they put in a lot of effort and they have a couple of lads who can boot the ball, not as far as Bortolusi, but bloody miles still. 
And they just start to lean in a bit to the very, like, almost old school, like, long ball-y type reductive tactics. And they work for them. It gets better and better as the game goes on, doesn't it? Like, there's a few times where, like, they stick up a bomb and forget to mark Bortolucci and he makes a break or whatever. Or, like, Mm. you know, they'll do something and they'll be caught in an offside position, give away something where Bortolucci can slot over three points or or whatever, you know. They have points where they make mistakes, but they very clearly learn from them the closer and closer they get to half-time. And Mm. I really, really like that because they know they're in a test match. Yeah. And we slowly see, as the game goes on, Italy go from in that first 10, 15 minutes, kicking for the corner and tapping penalties and so on, and really going for those tries and looking for that bonus point. They then start to just start around the half hour mark. They've suddenly, or no, around 70 minutes, actually, they get the first penalty and they suddenly start going for goal from those positions where they were going for tries earlier. And you can tell they're starting to get a bit rattled by just the sheer fire that this incredibly passionate Portuguese team have come at them with. Yeah, yeah. And like the crowd originally boo Italy for going for those penalties. And actually, I think in the first half, I think it was absolutely the right thing because they Mm. realised that they were getting so much, as you said earlier, March, they were getting spoiled. And it's like, you know what? If we can still get points, despite that being the case, when they tire, we'll eventually then go for the bonus point, I think is kind of the logic. And in the first half, I think they're absolutely right to try and build a score and get up to sort of 13 odd nil. They were at one point. Mm. I think you're right in the fact that we should have just kept building that score and then. In the second half, I mean, you can tell in that last ten minutes we start to get desperate, don't we? But which is actually, which is actually when we score, when we start to score the tries. But I think it was natural that Italy were probably doing what they have done to other teams before, and that they will try and frustrate, they will try and be difficult to play against. And in the last ten minutes, they kind of fall off, and the other team mm. sort of runs away with it, which is probably what we thought we were trying to do. But I think it was just a case of just not knowing what to do in that situation, because like I said, we're not not a team that we're used to winning or controlling games or building a score. We've pretty much always chasing a game. So I think that played into it. We weren't really sure. And I think Bortolami was just having a, a day where he was just quite rattled for the majority of the game. And I think that's probably affected his decision-making at times. But you're right. I think Portugal just thought, we'll just keep, we'll just keep frustrating them here and we'll keep, we'll keep trying to make this really, really difficult. And uh, Italy were just kind of frustrated. And that's kind of how we looked throughout. I'd love to see the handling errors, the, the, the handling error can because it must have been ridiculous. The amount of ball we dropped was, yeah. we didn't help ourselves. Portugal did spoil a lot, but we really didn't help ourselves mm. at all. And there's a few moments like there's Uva makes a brilliant turnover on a mall. We just kind of comes in and comes up somehow slides into the Italian side as though he was coming in at the back almost and runs off with it. And yeah. there's a lot of things like that where you can credit Uva individually. But that is ultimately an Italian error that they should never be letting him get into that position. Yeah. And, and there's an no awful lot of those them. Yeah. And just letting these Portuguese players who are, again, all the best will in the world to them, of a lower standard. Most yeah. of them are, you know, semi professional or even amateurs versus a fully professional team that's playing in the Six Nations for eight years at this point. But playing out of their skin. Yeah. All of them, but them. These players who are lesser than them, less coached, less fit, everything else, playing out their skin shouldn't still keep you to within a score at halftime. No, you know? absolutely not. And yet Portugal are able to come back. They get the, their try is beautifully worked oh, in I the end. I loved it. I didn't see it coming, to be honest. No. I kind of thought it would be a case of... Portugal keep knocking on the door and Italy would just scrap, you know, scramble and scrap to get the ball back. 
and keep kicking it back. Because that was kind of the case for sort of a 15-odd minute period. And they're getting closer and closer to the 22 each time. And I didn't think when they actually got in there, they would score it. But there's a bit... It's described as a moment of magic by Duarte Pinto on the commentary. But realistically, what he does is he just barrels into De Marini and just lets Pratichetti just also clatter into him and the two of them <laughs> bounce off each other and he somehow makes a break. The commentator describes it as, that is Sevens rugby at its best. <laughs> <laughs> it's a try scored by a lot from five metres out. <laughs> it's a lovely try, though. Like, it's a lovely that, try. After that Pinto break, they recycle brilliantly. And they've got um, Garma's just come on in the centres. It's his first touch of the ball. Receives an early ball from Cabral, who doesn't try and do too much himself. And Garma just waits, waits, waits perfectly. Delivers a beautiful kind of basketball-style pass over the top for... It's Penalva who scores in the end, yeah, isn't Penalva, it? Yeah, the second row. Yeah. He was a good game. Very He's good great, game. Penalva. Like I mentioned, yeah. sort of absolutely all over. Just one of those key culprits in spoiling everything. Yeah. And always it's like when he pops up on the end, you know, when those players manage to get the odd try here and there. But beautifully worked, just kind of wide to wide. A kind of invention that we hadn't seen for Portugal, both in the previous two games and then especially in this game. Partly because when they try it, they very little catching tends to happen <laughs> when they try to go wide yeah. to wide. It's nice. It was, I love that basketballer. That's what, mm. that's what I quite noticed about that try. And a lot of the time about, because I think when you, you kind of, you see highlights from maybe the 80s and whatnot. You see so many of these nice offloads and kind of really there's no necessarily much plan about it. It's just kind of so off the cuff. And mm. Portugal just, it all happened really quickly as well. Portugal didn't spend much time kind of bat- battering at the line at all, really. It just kind of, it was kind of got into the Italian half, a few offloads and a pass and all of a sudden they were over. And it was like, watching it from an Italian perspective, you're thinking, you know, if they're able to do this. Why on earth are we not being able to do this? How have we just mm. been, and we just conceded a try so kind of easily and quickly like that. But it was a really lovely try. Just mm. just seeing the attendance for that game, I'm quietly mm. quite amazed that 45,000 people wow. watched that game. Yeah. And I, and the crowd were great. I mean, everyone was behind Portugal, and it was great, you know, anytime they won the turnover or they went and attacked the crowd, great, and that try was a really nice moment. But yeah. 45,000. I mean, I don't think you'd get 45,000 watching. So this was, this was in France. So I think Italy playing Namibia or something, it's the equivalent. I don't think 45,000 people are going to be watching that this year. This yeah. autumn. That's a massive crazy. That's just caught me by surprise, actually. 45,000 people. It's a classic World Cup fever thing, isn't it? I suppose Tuesday night, or was it Wednesday night, whatever it is, midweek, mm. them kind of going, this is the occasion if they did... I don't know, though, because there was a big thing about tickets being expensive. So more people turned up to see this than came to see Scotland play at Murrayfield the week before for the previous game, which is insane that people are turning out for a TV Portugal. But I suppose you've also probably got both. It's travelable for both sets of fans. Yeah. There seemed to be a reasonable Portuguese turnout yeah. in the crowd. Even if they were just Portuguese for a day. Yeah. yeah. I can't imagine that they have that many fans to, to travel. I can't imagine that no. they have that many because it was kind of quite substantial it? it's probably arguably a bigger crowd bigger more Portuguese fans than, than Italian at the time but yeah yeah great crowd great and it was in PSG's ground which has been so it was used for the rugby league in past but it's been rarely used for rugby union outside of the they held one game in the 91 World Cup there so I suppose there was a bit maybe there was a bit of an occasion there and it being you know very much like the football area of 
France, of, of Paris, you know, being, I don't know. But as you, you're right. Like, and the crowd is so into it. They get so, so behind Portugal. And the atmosphere seems absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Just one of those very, very Rugby World Cup days where you don't get that kind of crowd and that kind of attention and that kind of passion behind it in any where you've got neutrals becoming diehard Portuguese fans. Yeah, and I love like any other time them heckling Troncon and just like and Parise and all these Castro, like all of these absolute legends of the game who they will all have loved watching and they go like, no, you're the villain today, lads. Like every time any of those guys made a mistake, they were absolutely lapping it up. And that's great. Yeah. Complete turnaround on usual Six Nations fortunes and performances and everything else. That's that's what I think about. I think about that game is that I think we were probably quite complacent. The start we made in those first two minutes and and generally going into the game thinking that this has obviously got to be one of the games where we've got to get five points, we've got to get a bonus Mm. point. I don't think we had structure. I don't think we had much of a game plan Mm. as such. And given where our obvious strengths were, we didn't play to them either. So it kind of looked to me as though bit of complacency, thought we were going to win the game really comfortably and ended up just getting caught out on quite a few times. And I think once the game becomes a scrap, we weren't really, you know, we, once you once you result to that and you bring the game down to that, anyone can sort of come out on top in a game like that. And there's yeah. only the last 10 minutes that we kind of benefit because otherwise it's just a really scrappy game that ultimately either team could have won. I mean, Portugal never, I don't think they really ever looked like scoring in the second half, particularly. Mm. Uh, no kind of a lot of ball for Italy and Portugal didn't really have many attacks. And I thought what we liked to do was look for Italy, ruin it for themselves or or spoil it. And then Duarte Pinto would kind of kick the ball and they'd, they'd see what happened from there. But it was kind of worked really, but I don't ever think they were going to chase down that score once we'd got it to think about 9-5 start the second half. It was just a case of frustration that we didn't get the bones. Point. I, think if we'd have, yeah. I think if we'd have taken the game a little bit more seriously, we probably would have come out with five points that might have helped. Yeah. That I think that's it. You kind of, you look at the way Portugal play in that entire second half and you figure their ceiling is maybe 15 points. That's maybe the maximum yeah. they're going to score. And Italy get beyond that pretty early in that second half. In fact, I think they're beyond it maybe by half time. And then they spend half an hour in the second half, just drag down into the game, kind of game exactly Portugal want to play. Yeah. So they're, kicking as much as Portugal are. They're playing incredibly tight. They're not using the mall, which has been such a weapon for them. There is the one scrum where Portugal win a penalty off it, which is a glorious moment. And Rui Cordero standing up like he's Diego Maradona and celebrating <laughs> it. Like that's a that's a wonderful moment of it feels like that like third team prop he's been around for 40 years. I love Rui Cordero. And him going like He's always said in the you know in the clubhouse as he's having a pie going like you know I reckon I reckon if I had to go against Carl Sinclair I could get a nudge on him you know he, <laughs> he scrummages too straight you know his back's too long or whatever and he's got this one chance and he's pulled it off once and he's going to forget the other scrums in the game he won a penalty out of Castro Giovanni and nothing else matters yeah he's rattled him he's rattled him something we forgot to mention as well in the first half is when Bortolami comes back from his simbin. Marijonka calls him over and says, I expect better oh, yeah. from you because you're the captain, yeah. you know? And for the rest of the first half, every time any Italy player gives a penalty away or pushes someone, gets into a fight, whatever, every single time Marijonka calls Bortolami over and just goes like, look, you're setting a terrible example here. And clearly, like, Bortolami loses the ref so early on in the game. And on the other side of that, Vasco Uva just completely lets that happen. 
And there's one time where Portugal are warned for discipline in the 22, like at the end of the first half, just after like they've held out a long Italian attack and Uber came up with a penalty himself, you know, and you're thinking like, oh, they, they could close this out here. But it's really interesting, as you said a minute ago, like the scrappy nature of it. Clearly, the two captains are viewing this in a really different way because Bortolami's clearly frustrated at his team for the fact mm. they've not got further than 16-5 up by the half-time whistle. And Uwe, on the other hand, is really composed. Which is far easier to be when you're in that situation. You know, very yeah. different precedents. But as you say, I think Bortolami starts to get... He's obviously very understandably pissed off by the fact he got Simbin for not punching someone. Yes. And then when he comes back on... She would be. You can kind of you can appreciate that, to be fair. Take Simbin <laughs> for a punch, you never... I think someone's mentioned, you know, if, if you the commentary, I think, is like, if you're going to punch someone, you may as well, you wait until it's at the bottom of the ruck or... Well, along the lines of, if you're going to punch someone, punch someone. They'll yeah. just flick an arm out or something. That must be so frustrating as a second row where you hold that in for all your career and then you get sent off for punching someone without punching someone. At least you could have swung and connected, honestly. Yeah, proper proper Tuolangi on Chris Ashton. That's what you want to get in. More of it. Yeah. Bring that back. By the way, it's good that you bring up the commentary because the commentary was done by Nigel Starmer Smith, who is a guy that I just always hear like, oh, if he if it's like the sevens or the under twenties or whatever, <laughs> you know, it's always him doing the commentary on it, right? They had him and Simon Mannix, and at one point in the early second half, he says that came off the outside of the boot, a bit like my drive on the long holes, which is why you don't use your feet in golf; you use a club. <laughs> and there's another point where. Italy bring on a back rower I hadn't heard of called Silvio Orlando. And he says, I just want to know if Orlando has a marmalade cat, which is a reference I had to Google. What? There's a children's fictional character called Orlando the Marmalade Cat. And I'd never right. heard of it. And then he said that and I was like, okay, that's that's an extremely specific thing to bring up in commentary. Oh, he's got I have to look this up. Inside him. Yeah. It's noted on um, Orlando the Marmalade Cat's Wikipedia page, however. Under his gender, it says, male, brackets, has a wife. <laughs> wow. That's exactly what I thought this podcast was about. <laughs> Marmalade Cats. This kind of... This is, is this he... is cutting edge. This is. <laughs> is he made of marmalade? <laughs> I think so, yeah. He's a cat made of marmalade, I believe. He's a cat made of marmalade. It's called Orlando. Yeah, as a wife, yeah. Don't know much else about the guy. However, the thing is, right. what's ironic is I looked at that and I thought, oh, that's quite quite funny that he brings it up on commentary. A bit of a weird one, though. And then I kind of thought, like, wait, but now I know that, and now I also know that Matthias Orlando will be playing in the World Cup later this year. That's money in the bank for the Squidge videos. <laughs> that, very good point. So, that yeah, there's a bunch of Orlando the Marmalade Cat books. But okay. they're published from 1938 to 1972. It's quite an old school reference, so, isn't it? In 2007. Yeah. It's not down with the kids, is it? Yeah. I, I don't feel like I have to say... Um, <laughs> I don't feel like I have to say, oh, I'm showing my uh, my youth by uh, not knowing what Orlando the Marmalade Cat is. I feel like it was an extremely ambitious reference for him to bring up on a rugby commentary on a Tuesday night. Yeah, a children's book from the 40s. Yeah. <laughs> Good one. Who is that? There's that pundit that comes in every now and then in the commentary, and uh, I think he's the kind of the guy that's obviously down at pitch. Yes, side. Robbie Knox. He's the some, guy who does the top fourteen some, coverage. Yeah. Yes, some of, some of he, I can't remember what it was. 
but there were some things that he would come in and chime in and saying, and I just thought this is some really, this is some really wider the mark. Some of the stuff he was saying just didn't it just kind of really. You just kept popping in all of a sudden, kept popping in with certain things, and I can't remember what he said there, but he said something really weird at one point. I think it was quite an interesting commentary team, wasn't it? <laughs> interesting. It's kind of like we've got Portugal, Portugal Italy here. Let's let's see who we can. Let's see who's willing to do that one. <laughs> Uh, the well, other Robbie he, in the room. Can, yeah. I'd like to know what your opinion is on Robbie Nock. Oh, he does a very fine job of covering the highlights of the top fourteen on Premier Sports. No, he because he he seems to be on the sideline just to state the replacements are coming on. So you wonder why he's there because he'll be sat there, and then the commentator, the actual you know Nigel Starmer Smith, the main commentator, will go. Well, and now we've got to go down to Robbie Knock for an update on the teams. And he'll go, well, it looks like I think David Matthias has gone off for Portugal. And I'm not sure who's come on for him. <laughs> and But tell you what, he's now sitting pretty uncomfortably over here. The chair is too small for him. And that'll be the extent of his insight. <laughs> and I don't know why a commentator itself, why they've got to pay someone else to stand on the touchline to do this for him. And like sometimes you have it where Simon Mannix does his, uh, you know, summarising and goes like, oh, you know, the scrum's setting as we see Paul Griffin run onto the field. And then he goes, right, and now we'll go down to Robbie Nock. And then Robbie Nock will just go, okay, so uh, you might not know this, but Paul Griffin's just come onto the field. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, great. <laughs> but to be fair, he's, he's on Simon Mannix for stealing his thunder. And sometimes it'll be like, oh, someone is about to come on and they've been on for five minutes. <laughs> Which is, you've got one job, mate. <laughs> To watch who's coming on know, over Jeff. that line. Yeah, that was it. That was it. It's a bit like it's a bit the whole Jeff. It's like, yeah, cheers, Jeff. Thanks for telling us there in the bleeding office again, Jeff. Just like on the feet, just it's almost like FIFA, isn't it? They just go down <laughs> and they, they just they just mention the substitute, and that would be it. It'd be useful. It'd be fine. You can have a little box come up in the corner. To be fair, they had to go into the pause menu every time, so that's where they went down to Robbie Mark. Yeah. So. As we get slightly more into the second half, the two Pintos, and I have written down the Pinto brothers, but no, the, the Pintos just really start taking control of the game. And like Duarte Pinto grows into the second half the more and more it goes on mm. and just puts up kicks that are like proper like guy who has played amateur rugby and is absolutely horrible to play against kind of kicks, you know? Like puts up the kick to just, just the one space you're not marking or it spins in a really horrible way in the wind that you're not quite expecting, you know? And just his kicks are absolutely horrible to look at, but they're brilliant because if you keep letting them bounce or dropping them or, you know, they're bouncing into touch, whatever, like the, He's, he's kicking in so fantastic. He signed for Benetton Treviso off the back of this World Cup. Did he? Which is interesting because they clearly saw that and went, we want that guy. Yeah. Who is just hugely annoying to play against from watching this game. Like he made an impact. Yeah, for how sure. Long did, how, long, how long did he stay at Benetton? Just the one season, I think. It was pretty short-lived. He had Chris um, Burton breathing down his neck. Oh, oh God, sorry, sorry. Was... That's, one of the, that's one of the fly stinkers. There you go. Chris Sorry, it was Jose Pinto, the scrum half who went to Benetton. Sorry, I got ah, okay. wrong oh, Pinto. Okay. Still, yeah, he, he was, was very there. good though, Pinto, Jose. Yeah, he was at Benetton till 2008 when he went to Rugby Roma Olympic, where okay. he played for a few seasons, most of his, the rest of his professional career, before eventually moving back to Portugal and living in Lisbon. Now a doctor, so good on him. Mm. I was just going to say, he was, he was actually man of the match, wasn't he, Jose mm. Pinto? Oh, he was he actually... the official one? Yeah, fair play. He puts in a beautiful kick. 
just slides into touch. There's a few moments like that of him just being hugely annoying to play against. Like, and out plays Alessandro Droncon, who is one of the all-time greats. Yeah. Which is quite the thing to have. He can hold on to that forever. And I, yeah. that's, they're the moments in the Rugby World Cup that I love. And again, like, Troncon has an absolute mare by his standards here, right? It's not his fault at all. It's completely on his forward pack that, you know, every single ball that's coming his way, he's making an absolute mess of. But Troncon has a mare and Pinto has an absolute blinder. And stuff like that are why the Rugby World Cup is so great. Medical degree and once outplayed Alessandro Troncon. Yeah. Was so we then get there was a re- there was a fun moment though just touching on that Troncon I think it's the first half when he just he absolutely piles through one of the props not sure which prop it was the Portuguese yeah. prop but absolutely piles through one and then I think I think he gets Uber with a massive handoff just frozen to the deck with his hand and that's just kind of classic bald yeah. Troncon because <laughs> the commentary said at one point it's just like oh I'm not sure why Troncon's run into the forwards there and it's like well the reason he does it is because he's extremely effective at doing it and he's an absolute yeah. terrier the, the guy is a, the, the guy is, is a chunky boy like he's not he's, yeah. he's not your typical nine is he he's a bulldog mm. of a bloke classic Troncon just being like oh I'm just going to run into forwards and dump them on their backsides <laughs> that's what's great though because even though he has a bit of a nightmare you can still tell he's a world class player when he does have touches and like, whenever he kicks the ball it's absolutely beautiful he does a yeah. box kick off the back of a scrum from the number eight oh. feet which classic. super old school I loved it you can tell he played in the 90s <laughs> it's yeah I think we then get into those final 10 minutes and Italy finally go, oh, the mall's really working for us. We should just keep doing it. Yeah. And no surprise, just anyone in the mall is going to end up with a try. And somehow it's just Mara Bergamasco at the tail. <laughs> it's of the simplest, it most obvious try. But yeah, Bergamasco playing in the second of his five World Cups. Of course, this was also the year that he was on the cover of Rugby Awaits in Italy. So huge deal at the time. Manages to get over. Did you see Sergio Parise's impact on this try? No. He comes from miles away and absolutely belts his shoulder into Spatchuk, who's coming in the side of a mall, I from see. absolutely miles away. And if it gets picked up, it's one of the stupidest penalties, but it doesn't, so it's worth it because Italy just so desperately needed a second try, like mentally, if nothing else, because they've just been frustrated so hard. The bit was skipped over, that kind of 20, 30-minute period. It's where... Both teams really try and shoot themselves in the foot for ages. Like <laughs> yeah. you mentioned earlier that Penalva is like a well, a bit of a penalty machine, which is not many letters in his name away from. But like yes. there's one point where Italy no, Portugal forced this like kicking battle where they're completely on top and Canavozio hurries a reply. And Gonzalo Uva does that second row thing where he just chills in the backfield like, oh no, no, I'm just, I'm working hard, I'm working hard. But which means he's just resting in the backfield like. And he traps the ball with his foot and Penalva just goes, ball, ball! And runs from an offside position, picks it up and gets pinged for it. When Uva was like telling him, no, leave it. I need to be the one who picks this up, literally, because we'll get penalised otherwise. And just like, there's just moments like that where just like, Constantly, people are going up and down the field. Constantly, like Bortolami tries to rip Pinto's head off at one point, and thankfully the ref doesn't realise it was him, otherwise he would have sent him off. Like, there's so many just really dumb moments of both teams giving away penalties. Yao Uva uh, shoulder barges Bortolusi, and he gets missed. Like, there's so many just really stupid moments like that. Both team discipline just goes. That was something I really picked up on was actually how quiet Paris was. 
one moment in the first half where he saw, I remember who runs into him and kind of steals the ball and pitches it and runs off and makes a bit of a break. But otherwise, he kind of hardly was hardly mentioned. He was hardly kind of no impact on the game whatsoever. That was kind of the weird thing is watching an Italian game where he was just really, really quiet. And I mean, that's still really relatively early kind of in his career, kind of, kind of in the middle. It was kind of the time was hitting, but he had really little impact on that game. And I think that was probably the reason that Italy didn't do all that well. It's because normally when we play well, it's because Harry stays happily involved. It just wasn't. Mm. I think moving him to six wasn't great. And I think we end up bringing off Bossuai and then 10 minutes later, the, we start to go back, back to our forward pack. We start to utilise driving more, yeah. a little bit more. And we end up scoring two tries. And I think it's kind of on the back of the fact that we get a bit more control there. Yeah, Harry say was kind of there, and, and that's when that's when maybe he did have a bit more of an impact. But otherwise, for kind of sixty-five minutes, he, he did very little. Yeah, and also at the spine of that Italian team, and you look at the key standout players, right? You've got the front row do their job superbly. Yeah, but beyond that, as you say, you've got Vossaway who does not perform, and Parise, probably their best player playing out of position in a position where he's not getting as involved and not really working. You've got Troncon who was having a game. As you said, with his touches, but generally below his standard. De Marini is sort of anonymous. Again, has some lovely touches, such as one for the first Marty try, but isn't really changing the picture of the game, isn't really bossing things at all. And then you've got Bort Lucy, has a very good game. But if the standout amongst, you know, most of the spine of your pack is your front row and your kicking fullback, it kind of yeah. tells you where you're going. You're Definitely. kind of not going to come up for a bonus point in that game, even if you are going to come out with the win. The other point where Italy start to get the momentum, as you say, around that Bergamasco try, is Jose Pinto has to go off injured for mm. Portugal, which feels like a huge moment. And they they bring on a brilliant replacement in Luis Pizarro, who is on his 70th cap at this point. Mm. So it's great that they've got somebody experienced that they can bring on. But it just felt like no matter who they brought on, they, they really wanted to just leave on their nine who was really growing into the game. And it was really unfortunate that he had to go off and kind of, I, th- I feel like it slightly ruined the momentum Portugal were building. And then Italy score that try. At which point, so what, there's 10 minutes left of the game at that point, maybe? About eight, I think. Yeah. And clearly Portugal are breaking this into like four minute segments of like, right, okay, if we get through this next four minutes and just piss them off, then don't let them score another try. We're fine. Then obviously they scored the other one. That's like, right, okay, as long as they don't get their losing, no, their try bonus point, we're fine. You know, and they're clearly like changing, you know, moving the goalposts every now and then. Mm. And it's great because they're there to spoil the party, I suppose. But if they do manage to get a third try, Andrea Marzi, I think, has a really strong game. Doesn't see much of the ball but I think plays really well when he gets involved and he yeah, manages to yes. get a second, which is a couple of minutes to go. That's what I thought. I thought that he didn't actually get that many touches, but I think every time he did, he looked good. I think in the second half, he kind of makes a really good break when we're on the counter-attack. And I think in the first half, like I said, in the first half, when we had the ball, we looked really good and really slick with it. But because we were playing so far behind the game line, he yeah. just never really made that count. And then I think, a lot of the time, Marzi had the ball with loads of space in front of him, but that's because Portugal were just standing on the game line and Italy were just playing towards them all the time. That's the problem mm. a lot of the time. But Marzi, when he got the ball, was great. I think, obviously, you know, he'll have to, and he'll obviously go down as one of Italy's greatest players. I mean, he's kind of, he got Six Nations player of the, player of the tournament, which no Italian's ever done. He's the only one to have ever done that. So you obviously look at him and think, obviously, he was a really good player. But I think, 
he'll always be massively overlooked because of the fact he played recently. But I mean, in terms of what he could do and that he could play as that kind of Josh Adams winger that just direct mm. runs straight at you, quick, powerful, strong, abrasive. He could then be 50, which is where he did win that, that player of the tournament for when he was playing at fullback. And I think one of our, you know, that, that, that year he won it was when we beat France and Ireland, I think, mm. in, that, in that competition. And he was playing from fullback then. He could play all across that back, really. Yeah. He sometimes chipped in a ten as well, actually, because he, had he did. Yeah, he but did. Yeah. He just runs. He just he just runs such an incredibly good. He was always really direct. He could just veer ever so slightly his running angles, but never really did anything too drastic. But he was really quick and strong. And I thought those two tries and just a really and I think at first half, he's got that first try. He sort of goes under the post, slams the ball down his hand, and he just looks direct down the lens of the camera. And he's just got that really stern but totally cool, like mafioso type face on, and it's like, <laughs> don't fuck me because I'll run straight through. That's exactly <laughs> what it looked like. Um, yeah. It's just a brilliant, just a really over, a really kind of underrated because uh, he's mm. terrific. And Great coach now as well. Really game. But I think that's it. That's what mm. you're saying about how versatile he was and how. Not just he could play so many positions, but he could adapt his game to the position he was playing. It probably shows why he's gone on to make a really good coach. Yeah. Because he was able to completely transition the way he played. Like he plays. If you hadn't seen him play before watching this, you'd go, oh, he was a really hard running center who picked his lines well and, you know, ran hard, ran straight through people, as you say. You wouldn't necessarily think, oh, he can also be a really solid, dependable, hard-working fullback or, you know... Mm, like a creative fly-off or yeah. a quick winger or something. But and he was able that... to change his game fundamentally to whatever the team needed from him that and day. Like, he played for, like, Aroni Wasps, like, spent some time at Racing mm. and, like, went around the top 14. Like, he played for so many drastically different teams <laughs> yeah. who played incredibly different styles and was good for all of them. Yeah, 95 caps, played in four World Cups incredible career and as you say one of those players i'm glad he still talked about yeah because was a real standout and was a real really good player for such a long time when his first time I, 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 think, I think if you if you're looking to someone who can really grow and help with like younger italian players mm. and as a coach you can just like he was never he wasn't ever a hothead or too emotional or too he always seemed quite calm about things and he always gave that element of just maybe didn't need to say a fat lot and just kind of led from the front. And I think that kind of that kind of always, I think, makes you quite well suited to coaching. So I think if someone yeah. like me, Harry Say or someone else that's kind of really quite vocal or Bergasco, who is really quite vocal and passionate and quite shouty, that that mm. might not transcend into a good coach. Someone like mine who just looks like just a re- he is actually a really intelligent bloke as well. I'm not sure mm. about what he's kind of got on his CV, but I'm pretty sure he's a really intelligent guy. So the, the kind of guy you'd want to learn off as well. Definitely. And, absolutely. Absolutely. Go to, I, go to go on and be a really good coach. Just quickly, the last minute. Because okay. oh, they, okay. they yep. score that try from the chip over the top. And at this point, Italy are on three tries. And you go, oh, of course, okay, of course, they of might course. score a fourth here. And you've made this point a few times, Robbie, on the podcast mm. that bonus point culture has evolved in rugby. Yes. And they clearly Italy haven't spoken about, oh, yeah, let's go out and get one more try. Then we've got the bonus point. And the commentators are well but aware they do, of this. Because they, they're running it from behind their own trial line at first. At and then first. clearly something changes somewhere in that 
last passage or plays forget. It's not the sole focus. It's the fact that some they, players they, are not they take they take they take the tap, don't they, when they get the penalty mm. when potentially it was probably a better choice to kick to the corner and then nowadays if you've got a minute to go and it's a penalty, you're thinking, right, how far can we get this into the corner? Yeah. Step piece is our best chance of getting back into this game. No one would think it's in our own half, let's tap and go. Like, I mean, obviously no one's they haven't like I said, I don't think it's been talked about when Marzi scores that try that third try, there's no real urgency to kind of get the kick. There's mm. no like, they, yeah. they, they keep celebrating on the floor and I was thinking, why aren't they just getting on with the kick here? Because you're going to need all the time you can get that to get the fourth try. Because in the grand scheme thing, when you look at the Romania game, obviously should have got a try bonus point there as well. And this game as well, if we'd have got that, an extra point against Romania, we'd have gone on, got an extra point against uh, here against Portugal, that game against Scotland takes on a little bit more different meaning than obviously we come so close to winning that game that we could have gone potentially gone for just a win. Um, yeah. So getting that bonus point could have made a massive difference, but there seems to be no urgency from the third try to get on with it. Yeah. But then, like Squid said, we end up playing from our own line to try and find that try and then the penalty is along and it's a quick tap. So it's kind of, I, I'm not sure. I think there was an urgency there, but I don't think there was the knowledge of how best to go about trying to find that. Yeah, they certainly have, wouldn't have talked about it in the week, I think is the thing, of we have to get this bonus point, you know, because they get on the front foot and then Canale kicks the ball away and it bounces into touch. And in normal circumstances, you go, that's a great kick. That's a great option. But, but in the last yeah. play, Portugal go, yeah, that's great. We'll let that bounce into touch. We'll take losing 31-5 and being the heroes of the hour. That's that's fine by us. You have you can see it as they cut back to him. It crosses his face, what he's just done. Yeah. Because he was clearly just going, the space is open. You know, I'm going to put this kick in. We can pressure the line out, etc. But instead, he realises, oh, no, the full-time whistle went four minutes ago. (laughs) (laughs) We've slowly eaten up 60 metres from our own goal line into their half. Yeah. And now, now I've just kicked it dead. <laughs> so yes, that's that's the game over. Um, yeah. 31-5, the final score to Italy. Deserved in the end, but mm. Portugal, very much the ones I was celebrating at the full-time whistle. Absolutely. Speaking of people celebrating the full-time whistle, should we start with Man of the Match? Sure. Uh, Will, do you want to kick us off? Can do, yeah. So... Firstly, I think Duarte Pinto was fantastic. I mm. loved his contribution to this game. I think that he played such a huge part in Portugal's heroism as this game went on. It's interesting, the only Italian name I had written down was actually David Bordalusi. I've realised as we talked about this that I probably should have put Castro and Lechichero in there as well, actually, yeah. because they were so good in the scrum. And the fact that Fossil, I couldn't control it, isn't really their fault. But my man of the match is Vasco Uva. He was absolutely everywhere getting turnovers throughout the entire game and led his team brilliantly and really kind of rose above the challenges Bortolami kept trying to give him. Marsh, do you have a nomination? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I thought about the Italian front row because like you said, when it comes to front rows and you know, nowadays they normally get about 50 minutes, don't they? They get 50 minutes, 55 minutes to, to have an impact and then they get swapped. But these guys, I think Aldini lasted the whole game. So you look at the front row and they did everything that they were asked that they could possibly do, everything they were asked for. They absolutely tore that Portuguese scrum to shreds, which you'd expect them to if we've been totally honest, given the calibre as well. So probably have to look at, uh, at those guys. But then I think I originally had Bortolusi down there because he kicked really well. He obviously got the penalties and 
usually when you have that much of a say in a game, probably looking at someone like him. I think having spoken about it a little bit more, I probably would give it to Andrea Maz because scored two tries, uh, obviously, therefore kind of a, a key person in the game. But when he had his touches, he made them count and he just looked, he looked like the one player on the pitch who, whilst there were some, you know, perfectly honourable mentions for some of those Portuguese players like Pinto Brothers and but Marzi looked like the one player on the pitch who actually had a lot of class and a lot of actual kind of real good quality. And I don't think there was much of that on the pitch. And I think Andrea Marzi probably was the player that people looked at and thought, that guy's actually really quite good. And I think I'd probably, so I'd, I'd give it to him on, on, on that basis. Yeah, good I'm, selection. Yeah, I'm in almost exact agreement there. I think, yeah, Vasco Uva deserves enormous mention. I thought he was absolutely fantastic, as were the collective Uvers and Pintos. And if I could have given a joint man of the match to just anyone called Pinto, maybe I might have. Uh, I don't think you can kind of separate the two. As I said, the Italian front row, fantastic. And I thought, yeah, both Lucy had a really good game. In terms of once the game becomes a dogfight, he becomes such a weapon for Italy to be able to deploy. And he becomes just absolutely invaluable. His kicking, uh, how reliable he just is consistently. Uh, fantastic. But uh, yeah, I think Andrea Marzi just stands out as every time he gets involved, he is the best player on the pitch. And I yeah, don't think fair. there's much more you can say than that. Just every touch he has, he is a class above everyone else on the field. And it's very telling. You know, he scores two tries. He ultimately is a big part of what takes Italy beyond and to that win. And maybe if he'd been more involved, maybe things could have got to that bonus point stage. What I'm saying is Nick Mallet should play him at 10 the following Six Nations. <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, yeah, I was, I was, I'm saying Andrea Marzi as man of the Fair match. enough, fair enough. And to roll straight into my dick of the day, nailed on instantly Simon Mannix, the commentator, co-coms. There's many points could have given it to him for. One, for not giving me enough context on Orlando, the marmalade cat, <laughs> because look, I've got the list of books in front of me. Orlando, the marmalade cat, becomes a judge. He becomes a doctor. Wow. He writes a magic card. Much like Jose Pinto. There's one book called Orlando's Country Peep Show, which sounds pervy as hell. <laughs> he buys a cottage at one point which is really aspirational, showing, you know, you can dream of home ownership. There's one where he meets a water cat, which sounds fascinating. There's one where there's three of his wife, which, again, sounds like the peephole one, not rated for children. Honestly, I could have so much more context there. No, but there's one point, I think it's around the Portuguese try, where he begins talking through the players involved and then goes, actually, I'm not even going to try and pronounce that one right now. <laughs> and yes, as someone that's got their pronunciations wrong repeatedly, even on this podcast, I understand that, but it's your job. You know, go look it up, go do your research, learn from the blood. Go ask them before the game yeah. how to pronounce your name, you know? World Rugby published publication gu- um, pronunciation guides. I didn't have one right there. That's why I said publication guides, <laughs> not pronunciation guides. Just do your job. At the very least, fumble it or say the centre, you know, <laughs> rather than... <laughs> You would never say that of an All Blacks player or an England player. So it's just treating them differently. So yeah, Simon Mannix for me, the dick of the day. Fair enough. March, do you want to go first on dick of the day or should I? Sure, I'll go. I'm pretty sure it was Federico Cuesta, the Argentinian touch judge, who (laughs) felt the need to get involved in the first eight minutes and to be the the important guy putting his flag out and 
say Bortolami's punched someone when no angle possibly shows any sort of punch <laughs> whatsoever. It's a great shot. And manages to get Bortolami to the bin. So my dick of the day is going to the Argentinian judge, Chico uh, <laughs> Cuesta. You're absolutely spot on the thing. No, yeah, I can't believe I've missed that. It is yeah. him, yeah. He kind of missed Absolute the dick of the dick. day. <laughs> you see, so one guy I had written down was Marco Bortolami himself for the fact that yes. he got told he punched somebody and went on and was like, I didn't, but I can if you want. Um, and came back on and just chose pure violence. I particular, there was that point I mentioned earlier where he got in a fight the referee didn't realise it was him and said, go back and talk to your team. And he walks back to his team and goes like, I can't believe you've all done this. What are you doing? Why are you all fighting? And they all looked at him like, mate, that was you, you dick. You know, <laughs> and, and, like that in itself is dick of the day worthy. Another guy I have written down is Alessandro Troncon for the fact that in the Italian anthem, he doesn't do the big C at the end. He doesn't yeah. join in with that. And that is really uncomfortable as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, worthy But ultimately, the... Dick of the day for me is Andrea Marzi for scoring that first try. There's no need for it. He shouldn't have done yeah. that. He scored too yeah. early. He did them yeah. no favors. Yeah, I did have I did have Bortolami down to be fair as one of them, as well as Vossuai, just because he couldn't catch a goal and uh, <laughs> yeah. could have easily been him. I would say he had feet for hands, but he couldn't trap it with his feet either. <laughs> he struggled no, with that. Yeah, yeah, he wasn't a footballer, was he? So, speaking of football-ish, this is a vague link. If people did want to see, obviously, you know, you've been covering both rugby and football, everything else. People did want to see more of your work, find you on Twitter, everything else beyond. Where can people find you? Where can people dive into more of your work if they're huge fans of what they've just heard, which I'm sure they will be? Right. We just got to appreciate that. I don't have that lovely blue tick next to my name anymore. Got to Fritz have been taken away from Elon Musk. Elon Musk will forever, will never be on my Christmas wish list. Uh, every, <laughs> but um, he wants an eight uh, yeah, my, from you though. Yeah, most likely he will. My actual account is uh, at M Francis, which is my professional rugby and football everything kind of Worcester Warriors based. But I also have my at uh, Rugby Italia ninety six, my Il Tricolore uh, Italian rugby account, which, if you are interested, would be much better to follow. Just because I'd much rather have a big following on there with my Italian rugby stuff and. We're really trying to really trying to push Italian rugby, especially for kind of people back over here in England, and trying to make Italian rugby a little bit more accessible for people over here because you know it means means a lot to us to, to try and kind of boost boost our reputation, boost the coverage that we get, and make people stand up and take a take account for Italy a little bit more. I think we're on that. Uh, we think we've got a really good rugby team, we've got some really good rugby club sides. Which make sure you watch Benetton play on on Sunday. Everyone gets on jumps on the bandwagon and hopefully gets us to a, a Challenge Cup final. But um but yeah, yeah, so yeah, if you could give that rugby if you could give my Italian page, which is at rugby Italian Amazing. I just want to say what before was... we wrap up, thanks so much for coming mm. on. Like love your work. I think that the stuff you're doing about growing Italian rugby to these kind of audiences is brilliant. I think it's really, really important as well as all the stuff you've done around uh, obviously there's the not Worcester. much to say on Worcester at the, at yeah. the moment, but all the stuff you did around when Amazing all that was happening was fantastic yeah. and it was obviously yeah. Awful circumstances, but I've loved your coverage of the whole saga, you know. So, no, keep up the good work and thanks so much for coming on and sharing your views with us. I really appreciate it, yeah. And I just a, a shout out also, there's kind of, I'm not the only one pushing the Italian rugby. So my uh, colleagues I have, uh, on, we have a 
we've just called Green and the Italian before, and we've another big page, and uh, we've got a few others like um, Italian Rugby Abroad, and there are quite mm. a few of us who, who are trying to make Italian rugby more accessible. So if you, you know, take note for those guys as well, because they're doing they're doing just as much as I am to, to boost Italian rugby. So it'd be massive. Appreciate coming on. Uh, thanks to both of you. It's been a privilege to thanks, come man. on one of these oh, thank you. one of the Likewise. podcasts. So I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. No, thank you. Thank you for doing it. Yeah, and also just worth looking at the tree color account just for the little drawing of you surfing on a pizza. <laughs> yeah, is... I, mean, I couldn't have been any more. I couldn't have been any more. Yeah, obviously, I've I've put someone eating pizza in Italian. I, I I just thought I needed something. I needed. Something. I'm not yeah. an absolute whiz. I'm not a whiz with that kind of thing in any circumstance. But um, yeah, it was, no, it's it was as good as it was going to get. Good as it was going to get. <laughs> It's excellent. It's well worth finding as well as following. Yes. Thank you. Great, great stuff. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Will, as ever, for continuing to put up with this nonsense. (laughs) Please join us next week when we will be looking at Wales' 72-18 win over Japan. (laughs) Yep, it never stops. Thank you, Marge. Thank you, Will. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next week. Goodbye. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher.